0: Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast. Because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Compassion is Never Inappropriate, we are joined by Lisa Cataldo, Associate Professor of Pastoral Counseling at the Graduate School of Religion and Religious Education at Fordham University, who shares her thoughts about trauma-informed teaching.
1: So Lisa, welcome to the Twice Over podcast. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. First of all, before we dive into talking about these very serious topics, can you tell us a little bit about what your job is at Fordham? Because many of our colleagues may not have met faculty in the Graduate School of Religion and Religious Education. So can you talk about what pastoral care is, what pastoral mental health counseling is, and how that fits in To the university?
2: Sure. I'm happy to talk about that because I think we're not so visible all the time at GRE because we're very small. We're definitely the smallest graduate school at Fordham. Our faculty depending on the year is nine or 10 right now, but essentially we're a school of practical ministries. So we teach people who are in various types of ministry, Catholic, non-Catholic, ordained, not ordained, working in fields of service like spiritual direction, religious education, pastoral ministry, or in my case, pastoral care like chaplains or people training to be chaplains, and pastoral mental health counseling, which is mental health counseling or psychotherapy, with a spiritually informed perspective. So we're all in practical fields, all the faculty there, and our students are all coming to be trained professionally in practical ministries.
1: That's so interesting. And I have an aunt who did some pastoral care counseling, so I know a little bit about the work, but can you explain why This is an important subfield of counseling psychology. That's a great question.
2: I should have full disclosure here and let you know that my own particular clinical training is in psychoanalysis. So I am a psychoanalyst. I am licensed as a psychoanalyst and I practice as a psychoanalyst. However, I also have a Master of Divinity degree and my scholarship is in the area of psychology and religion. So these things, psychology and religion, come together in the field
1: of pastoral care and counseling. It's so great, it's really interdisciplinary.
2: It is by its nature, 100% interdisciplinary. Psychology and religion is really, in both of those fields, inform pastoral care in contemporary times, and certainly pastoral counseling or pastoral psychotherapy, which is also called, depending on who you ask. So pastoral care usually covers things like spiritual care in hospitals or prisons or other kinds of settings where people have chaplains, schools, universities, our mission and ministry office, our campus ministry office would be a place where people who have pastoral care backgrounds could conceivably work also parishes. Uh, And anybody who's a pastor or a priest or minister has to do pastoral care as part of their job. So the way that we teach it at Fordham is a psychologically informed approach to caring for persons, really in line with the Ignatian commitment to core personnel. It truly is a whole person approach to spiritual care in religious contexts. Pastoral psychotherapy is something more specialized and different, whether you call it pastoral mental health counseling, as we do in our program, pastoral psychotherapy, pastoral counseling, it's counseling or psychotherapy where the practitioner is a person who's trained in theological and spiritual approaches to the human person. So that in my practice with patients, I may work with people who are entirely secular. And our students may do the same. They do the same kind of internships as Fordham social work students, Fordham grad ed counseling students uh, in purely secular settings. But what they bring to the therapy session is an expertise and understanding of the spiritual dimensions of human life and theological training. So they can bring that in their personhood as a therapist and can make space for the spiritual dimension of the client's life, whether or not that's explicitly discussed in the therapy. And then some of them do much more explicitly pastoral psychotherapy in, say a church
1: counseling setting, something like that. Right. So it really runs a gamut depending on the practitioner and the client. Right. So part of how this conversation got going was this, idea of trauma informed teaching. And I did a workshop that I found really valuable on trauma informed teaching that was online during the pandemic. Um, It's a phrase that was new to me when I signed up for the workshop. And I found it very useful. I'm wondering if you can explain what trauma informed teaching is, and then kind of talk about some of the boundaries of it. Yeah, I think these days, the idea of
2: trauma informed teaching and trauma informed pedagogy and trauma informed just about everything is really uh, spreading on many levels, many fields, many approaches. Uh, Trauma informed medical care, trauma informed psychiatric care, trauma informed police work, all of this. The, The idea behind all of those movements, including the teaching movement, which is been very popular or gained more uh, attention in public education and primary education, and now working its way kind of up the educational ladder, um, is based on the idea that experiences of trauma, and particularly ongoing trauma, but experiences of trauma affect the way people function in their lives, and it affects the way people learn in educational settings in particular but in other settings it affects the way people can absorb healthcare information or the way they may react to a police intervention and so that the more people are trained to understand the effects of trauma the better they can be of service or intervene in situations where they're serving the public right and
1: same with kids one of the things that's so surprising to me as a teacher is i think those of us who are interested in trauma and interested in thinking about being sensitive to the presence of trauma we're not surprised if someone gets a hard diagnosis that that might be traumatic and it would be hard to hear what the doctor says after he's given you bad news or she's given you bad news But I've had the experience of accidentally triggering a traumatic reaction from a student in a class where I'm just talking about a short story, right? (laughs) And it's a surprise. And even if I'm fairly sensitive to like, okay, this is a short story. It's set in the First World War. You know, this is a class that talks about war. So we know, but you know neither you nor the students know that it's going to be this poem on this day. That's going to be upsetting.
2: Yeah, I don't think you're alone in having that experience. I teach a trauma seminar. I still have that experience uh, in and outside the trauma seminar. So I think there's sort of many ways we could approach a situation like that. But one is to understand like how trauma works and why something like that could happen and be so surprising. And also to think about like what trauma actually is, what and what it isn't. Because one of the benefits of the attention to trauma-informed pedagogy and all these other things is that it really is taking into account people's realities that affect the way they learn. Let's just stick with teaching and pedagogy. So it's really been a benefit because uh, it also recognizes that the way the experiences people had in their childhood affect their adult life, and that things that we take for granted, someone who doesn't necessarily have a sensitivity around something, takes for granted that it's perfectly acceptable, can really feel surprised and disarmed by the reaction it can get. It can produce in, a, in another person so you say in your in your class you know just teaching about a short story or poem you know i teach priests all the time and clergy people who may not understand that the very substance of what they do traumatizes people unwittingly because people have certain sensitivities or have certain experiences in their background that make them susceptible to feeling overwhelmed and when hearing words or, or having experiences that are reminiscent of an earlier traumatic experience. So let's just say, first of all, what's trauma? Trauma is extreme stress that overwhelms a person's capacity to cope. So we all know what stress is stress is on a continuum from, you know, gee, I have an exam next week and I'm worried about it, or I have to grade 44 papers in a day and a half. That's one kind of stress. And that's going to continue all the way to an extreme stress reaction where something is experienced as a threat to my life and my going on being. And therefore, I don't have the capacity to process that event. So the trauma is not the event itself. The trauma is the response to the event. So you, all the three of us, Steve and Ann, myself, we, we could all have the, go through the same experience together and only one of us might be traumatized by that experience. So what determines whether something is a trauma or not is how your neuropsychological system responds to it.
0: Fordham University has a lot of veterans. So I, a couple of years ago, did a training about how to teach in classes with with veterans and how to take into account the experience of veterans and what kinds of behaviors veterans might exhibit um, that would indicate the effects of their experiences. That summer, after I took the training, I taught summer school and I had seven veterans in the class. And what you said resonated for me because I could see that some, some veterans, you know, they use their experiences as a way into us teaching a management class, a way into sort of talk about the theories and apply them. And others like never spoke about, you know, what, what their ex- military experiences were. And thanks to that training, I, I, was, I was mindful not to press them Oh, and you were also in the military. Does that make sense? You know, so I I started thinking about other kinds of experiences non-military, you know, non-vets may have had and how that they may still carry the effects of those experiences as well. I don't know if this is trauma-informed teaching because it's not really my area.
2: That is trauma-informed teaching, right? Trauma-informed Teaching or a trauma-informed classroom is one in which the instructor takes seriously the effects of trauma on, on students in the classroom and does their best to create a space that is non-threatening and offers people choices and control to some degree. So you offer the folks who don't feel like talking the option not to talk respecting their sensitivities.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about what, like practically, is it how I organize my syllabus, how I assess student learning, what discussions look like? What are some things?
2: Before I kind of give some tips about that, I just want to say to the people out there, our listeners out there in listener land, there's two ways that attention to trauma-informed teaching can go wrong. And those are to take it too seriously and that's not really the right phrase but to make too much of it or to make not enough of it and both things go on in educational circles all the time now these days when i say words like trigger warning or safe space those words can be very inflammatory depending on who you're talking to people can get very nervous about words like that when I say people can take it not seriously enough or not make enough of it, there are certain ways in which people are feel overburdened by having to make their classroom rethink their teaching in a particular way to accommodate the sensitivities of students uh, or certain students. and. Uh, it's a little bit like, well, you know, when I was a kid, I walked to school five miles in my bare feet. So why should you get shoes and a bus, you know? So I don't want to make it, it's too easy on people and people can go deal with their own problems. And that's not my classroom is the place to have to worry about that. And then other people are so concerned about trauma-informed pedagogy that they feel they're supposed to be a therapist or their student or create a therapeutic environment in their classroom. In theological education, this is the trend. This is why we did the other podcast, because people in in some theological education are really feeling that they have to become trauma experts and create a therapeutic environment in the classroom. I think it's important to draw some boundaries around what we're talking about when we talk about trauma-informed teaching. You still gotta be you, you know, and do your do your thing and teach your your subject uh, and engage your students. But in a way that recognizes that some of the students in your classroom will have trauma histories. And in the days of COVID and after two years of a pandemic, there are going to be more people who are really in vulnerable positions than maybe normally. And being aware of that and setting up a, a teaching experience, a learning experience that can make space for that is going to be really helpful. And also it's for your own benefit too, as a teacher.
1: That's really, really helpful. And it, and it raises some other questions for me. So thank you for that answer. I'm thinking, I think often. So much of the work I do with faculty is around facilitating conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and helping faculty rethink, revise their pedagogies in recognition of an increasingly diverse classroom. And this is distinct from, but not unlike some of what you're talking about in terms of trauma-informed teaching, right? Because it's a, it's a, request of faculty that they are even more mindful of the students in the room than of the content on the syllabus, right? That you're not just putting the content on the syllabus, it's a 1000 level class, so we're just gonna run through all this material, but they're actually people who are learning that material and they're coming to us with specific contexts that we may need to understand. So when I was teaching in Indiana, I had really what seemed to me super excellent advice from a counseling psychologist there about boundaries. And she said, when students come to you and they're asking you advice and you feel like they're asking a little bit more of you than you're professionally prepared to give, stop and refer them elsewhere. Right. And she said that boundary is going to be slightly different person to person, but that if you feel uncomfortable, that's a clue. Like, don't ignore that clue. If you feel uncomfortable, then you might say, you know, we have a counseling center, or there's a pastor, or why don't you talk to your roommate about that? Or you can talk to your mom, you know, I'm, it's not my place to tell you whom to marry, right. And so like, th- this is something that was valuable to me as a teacher. Sometimes, however, when I'm talking to instructors who don't really want to be involved in students' lives, they have set their boundaries so far away from the student as if the student is not even present in the room. And I'm wondering what you would say to that kind of teacher who's like, you know, you know what, I'm uncomfortable knowing you have a mother, right? Like, I just want to talk to you about (laughs) chemistry. Ah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And, you know, that's
2: so far um, from the experience of someone who teaches therapy, you know, because we're, we're always involving our students' I suppose uh, that's personal right. stories, right? Um, but certainly I've seen that. And I think I want to, first of all, I want to reassure those teachers, you do not have to be a therapist to your students. And please don't. Please don't. So I am a therapist. But I am very clear about what my role is in the classroom and in advisement and in mentoring. So I'm not being the therapist or clinician for my students. And I think that one of the most important things about trauma-informed teaching in general is the idea of boundaries, which is an overused word, but a really, really important one, because boundaries protect people. Right? They protect us as the instructor and the person in authority in the room, and they they protect the people who are our students. Um, so that means things like being aware of what your role is in terms of advice giving, advising, listening to student concerns. And I think there's a big big difference between being compassionate, a good listener and compassionate and being somebody's therapist, right? I would in an Ignatian-informed institution, Ignatian-inspired institution, at least like to encourage all the faculty to be, you know, compassionate human beings who care about the whole person because, you know, we're Ignatian. So I'm going to say consider that your compassionate presence is important to your students that doesn't mean you have to give them personal advice you care about
1: them as human beings that's important that so resonates with one of the very first conversations we ever had with jeffrey ang who's director of counseling psychology and he was talking about how frequently in his experience faculty forget how important we are in our students lives and that just the expression of care is something that matters and can be very, just valuable to the student. Just to say, I'm sorry you're going through a tough time. Just even that simple thing, that's not counseling, that's not breaking a boundary, but it is acknowledging, I'm sorry you're going through a tough time, and then let's pivot back to how we're going to make up this midterm exam that you slept through, or what we're going to do because you missed a deadline, or the reading is hard for you to focus on because you're struggling in some other area of your life, right?
2: Right. I mean, compassion is never inappropriate. I
1: mean, I think (laughs) that you're not helping people if you're
0: telling them you can help when you're not qualified to help.
2: And help is being willing to care about somebody. That doesn't mean you're the provider of mental health services or anything else. Um, and I think students really don't need you necessarily to solve their problems or be their therapist, but they, I think they need to know they matter to you.
0: When you're talking about your teaching and your practice, how, how do you do that in, In an asynchronous online environment like how do you build a community of trust um, in in that space
2: well first of all it is more than possible to do that and in fact sometimes it's easier to do it in an online format uh, asynchronous online format than it is to do in a classroom where people walk in and out after you know you see them for two three hours and then you don't see them for a week and there's no contact in between. Uh, in the asynchronous online environment that we've been using at GRE for a long time, the short answer is it's a lot of work. It's more work than you put into your in classroom course often. Because of the fact you need to reach out more personally to students than you would if you had 20 people in a classroom, you wouldn't go home and feel bad if you didn't get in touch with all of them every week personally, because you see them. But in an online course, you might some little message out to the group in between, you know, over the course of a week. Uh, and multiple interactions really does help people to feel cared for. And I think the most important thing, and I'd say this the same way in a classroom is that the teacher needs to actually be present as a human being, not just a role or a lecturer. So I, you know, I know that for both of you, that's how you are as people. And I imagine your class is the same way. So I'm not just giving you some opening your head and pouring some content into it. I'm, I'm involved with you in this learning project and I'm a, I'm a person. So you get to see me as a person to some degree, again, with boundaries. I'm not just reciting formulas or how to manual or something like that.
1: In your talking about boundaries, a couple times you've alluded to kind of how boundaries are beneficial for teachers And I know that I'm exhausted right now. It's been a long pandemic. And I do not think, I know that I'm not unique in being one of the professors in this country, in this world who feels a little weary of the ongoing long tail of this COVID-19 pandemic. So can you talk a little bit about how boundaries are beneficial for us as teachers and how we can work to preserve our own kind of psychic and mental health while being compassionate instructors?
2: Yeah, that that is probably the most important question of all, because if we're not in a place where we can sort of hold the space for our students, that is not going to help anybody. Right. So, I think part of trauma-informed pedagogy is understanding that we are not immune to trauma ourselves. So this applies to us as well as to the students. That we all come into this, we walked into March 2020 with our own histories, many of which include adverse experiences and, and traumatic experiences, sensitivities, and also, you know, family issues and ill parents and whatever we have. And then we're being asked to, and we want to do our jobs, which partly consists of caring in some manner for large other groups of people, our students, uh, who are themselves going through very difficult times. And then on top of that, we have to do our job in a whole different way that we may not feel comfortable with. We're being asked to give more. When other people in our lives need more too, and we need more. So it's inevitable that people are going to be exhausted and overwhelmed, and for some people really, really overwhelmed, really traumatized by the whole experience. So I think that the most important thing is to believe that you deserve to feel well, as well as you can, and that it is important and actually a benefit to your students and the work you do for you to take care of yourself. Be mindful of your own state and your own limits. Trauma by definition is being having our limits overwhelmed, flooded, overcome, right? So trauma therapy, when we work with people, is to help them begin to regulate that huge amount of overwhelm, take it down, turn down the volume, turn down the power, right? And get to a centered place. And so many of us in teaching are helpers. You know, we could be doing a lot of other things (laughs) in our lives, but we choose to be givers of something, to be helping people, to be imparting knowledge and helping people to grow. Well, that takes some energy, right? So, and... In times like this, we're putting ourselves in the path of other people suffering a lot. So in order to do that, we have to have a center. So first of all, you get to take care of yourself.
1: Second of all, you get to ask for help. You don't have to do it by yourself. The giving part is one thing, Hmm. but another part of the identity of the professor is as the knower, not the one who needs help. And it can be really hard to say, I don't know how to do this. I think I could use a hand here because with our students, I think for professors, it is
2: hard to ask for help and to even think we're allowed to because we're supposed to be, I don't know, in charge of something or in control of something, but I'm telling you, nobody controls a virus. We personally cannot control the circumstance of, this, of the pandemic, and that makes people feel more vulnerable.
0: How do instructors from this place of vulnerability exhibit caring for their students?
2: Students know if you care about them. It isn't about whether you read the boilerplate information. They know because you actually care about them. And it doesn't matter if you say that in a particular way, you know, like I really care about you, I'm here for you, or whether you show regard for their um, humanity and their vulnerabilities and you love them. So I have not one hesitation about saying that you have to love your students to be an effective teacher and you have to love your patients or clients to be an effective therapist. You do not have to like them, but you have to love them. And so to me, what that means uh, is that, and, and this is not just me saying this, one of my supervisors years ago, my clinical training, I had a very difficult client, I had a hard time working with her, I couldn't understand how to connect with her. And he said, yeah, the problem is you don't love her. You have to find something to love about her. And if you can't find something to love about her, you should refer her to somebody else. Wow. Right? And This changed everything for me Because I I understood that, you know, relationships of caring and helping and serving, whatever we're calling what we're doing, they're relationships, right? I'm a relational psychoanalyst. So for me, everything's about relational, the relational dynamics of what's happening. And to say, I love my students means that I see something good in every one of them. And something worth caring about, even if it's a person I don't particularly like, uh, though that hardly ever happens at Fordham. Luckily, we have a lot of really great students at GRE. But love is a choice that I make to love my students, is, a, is an intention that I have in terms of that informs what I do it's sort of like a, you know, a spiritual commitment, I guess, or something like that, but it doesn't have to have any religious content necessarily. And one of my very close analytic psychoanalytic colleagues who I just admire tremendously, uh, has written many articles on analytic love, you know, why love is the correct response in a clinical setting. And I think love is the correct response in the academic setting, especially if you're working for a Jesuit institution, but even if you're not, right, that this means I honor the humanity in everyone who comes into my classroom and I recognize their value and their worth. I can hold that my response and my presence in the classroom like, it's important to me that you're here. I care that you're here you individually, every one of you, I care that you're in this room. Right. And we're going to do something together. To me, that's what it means. It doesn't mean I like everybody's personality or I'm going to invite them to my house. That is
1: not it. Right. Love with boundaries. I wanted to ask you if there is a teacher in your past who's class or lesson you still look back on or that continues to be a guidepost for you Absolutely my you know and it's a sort of cliche almost
2: but you know my senior year high school English teacher Steve Viando was his name I went to an all girls high school Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur but we had a few male faculty members around at the time I took, a, I took two classes with him. One was uh, English literature or British literature, and one was Mark Twain and American humor. I still remember that. What a great course that was! And I was, you know, like most of us who end up as professors, you know, read till my eyeballs fell out from the time I could figure out what a word on a page was. So reading wasn't new to me. Loving reading wasn't new to me enjoying English class wasn't new to me, but something about the way he invited people to experience something alive in every story we read or every novel we read and really pushed us to find meaning in things and connect it to our lives. You know, This was like a huge awakening for me. And personally, I felt like he saw me. He got the nerd intellectual that was trying to get out when I was 17 and like Mm. be cool and smart and read like what you do on your Christmas vacation. I don't know. I memorized a whole bunch of D.H. Lawrence poems. Why? Because I did. That's what I did. But no one knew that. But he did. That's great. And he he was somebody I could tell that I did that. And he would think it was cool and not weird. You know, and so I've never forgotten him. He's the most encouraging person who recognized me. And that's the gift.
1: Lisa, thank you so much for being our guest. It was so fun to talk to you. It was wonderful being here with you.
0: Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.